Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're working away from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 16, verse 24, and we are moving at breakneck speed. Uh, we've got three verses done, and we will never get done with this book. We'll just see where it takes us, though. Uh, just so you know, your, your homework for next week, you can read uh, verses 17, or yeah, let's see, verse 10 through 17. Let's, let's do eight verses. Let's see what we can get done. So if you were here last week, uh, among other things, Paul told these people in Corinth, you all are saints, which is an amazing thing if you've read 1 Corinthians before. Now, as Paul writes this, he's writing from Ephesus around 55, 57 AD. Uh, You remember, he's not writing alone. There's a dude there with him named Sosthenes. I call him Saucy. And so he's well aware of what's happening there in Corinth. And Paul's writing back. And he begins, and he says, hey, you've been made holy. Now act like it. And so as Paul generally does, he's got good news and he's bad news for this church, but he's going to start out with the good news first before he launches into 15 chapters of Nacho Libre body slams, just like, oh, I've got some things to challenge you with. And so these will be challenging things for us as well. So you can pray for your pastor as we go through some of these chapters, but uh, I'm looking forward to what God has for us. So again, Paul's going to go ahead and he's going to start out with the good news. He gives these great salutations. We ended last week in verse 3. You remember he said in verse 3, grace to you, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we start verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God. All right, we'll stop there. Grace, grace we need to understand. This is unearned, undeserved kindness from God. This, this, is, this is coming from God. And it's always helpful to understand the grace of God in the light of his justice, his justice. So, so when mankind sinned, when Adam sinned, we'll just lay it all on Adam. When Adam sinned, that's the moment in which sin entered the world. And because of God's justice, he couldn't look at Adam who just sinned and said, ah, let's overlook it. It's no big deal. Sin's not a big deal. Boys will be boys. Uh, We'll call ourselves even. No, because of God's justice, and we all want to just God, because of God's justice, he had to deal with that sin. That sin must be punished. And that sin is an original sin, which then is passed along to every single human being. We've all sinned. And so we all have justice hanging over our heads. There is a payment to be made. This is why Jesus came. This is why God sent his son, who's fully God and fully man. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when our sins were imputed, that means given to him, when he died, sin was taken care of on the cross, and now God could finally be gracious to sinners. And so what we're left with is you have a choice. You can choose to receive God's grace, this undeserved, unearned, loving kindness from God and have salvation and go to heaven, you can receive grace or you can receive justice, which doesn't make God unjust. He's very kind to give a gift of grace. He's also rightfully just and not unjust when he gives people justice for sin. 
And this grace, it's unearned. There wasn't anything that you and I could do to like pay for it. There's not anything that you and I can do to pay him back for it. And it's completely undeserved. There's, there's, there's nothing in us that says, wow, you, you owe me some grace. There's not a single thing. This is the kindness of God. We're not deserving of it. God, in his love, extends this grace to us, and we don't get credit for that. In fact, even the faith to receive that grace, that even comes from God, because all good things come from God. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, hey, if you weren't even one of my sheep, you wouldn't even be interested in the grace of God. So there's nothing in us where we can take credit. All the good stuff is being rained down on us by our heavenly Father, and that comes from God because God is good. And God's good not because you're good, but because he's good in and of himself. And he gives us this undeserved, unearned kindness, not because of us, in spite of us. And the moment that we begin to internalize and realize just how great this gift of grace is, that's the moment we really begin to appreciate it. And if we don't understand that it is this undeserved kind of thing moving in our direction, then we start feeling like, well, I I need to take credit for this. I've worked for this. Look how great I am. God owes me this grace. It's a little bit like uh, if you're a parent and you have kids. Sometimes our kids go in the direction of, Man, everything, all this good stuff, it's just automatic. Like the, the roof over our head, yeah, that's, that's automatic. I got that coming to me because I'm a kid. Uh, a warm bed, yeah, you owe me. You owe me a warm bed. Dessert, yeah, that too. All the good stuff, and they just started thinking all this stuff is automatic, and we're just like, no, I'm, I am blessing you with this. I'm making sure you have a roof over your head and a bed and dessert and all of these things. And nobody's guaranteed any of that stuff. There's people who are living in the streets. They don't have a roof over their head. And so it's not like, hey, we get to take credit for all of these things. When you understand this is undeserved, it is the kindness of God being rained down on us. Now we're thankful. We, if we don't move in that direction, then we start thinking, well, I get credit for this and, and I earned it. And then you start moving in the direction of self-righteousness and nobody likes anybody who's self-righteous. So Paul says, I thank God for the grace of God. It's all him. And twice now, he mentions the name God. So we should probably stop there and be like, okay, let's figure out who God is, because that's a pretty big question. Which God's he talking about? Who, Who is this God? And for some of you in the room who have not yet stepped across the line and received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and become a Christian, and I just, I recognize you're here. I'm glad you're here. You, you might even say, I don't believe in God. Or maybe you've heard somebody that says, I don't believe in God. And then you got to ask them, which God don't you believe in? Because there's a whole bunch of gods to not believe in. So which God don't you believe in? Well, you know the God, the God that's in heaven. And he's distant. And he's angry. He's got white hair, and he just can't wait to stomp all over people and squash them like a bug. Oh, that guy. I don't believe in that God either. So which God is Paul talking about? Well, Paul's talking about this God who he says is one God. It's singular, right? So Paul doesn't believe in polytheism. We get a whole bunch of gods, kind of like uh, these Greek gods, like in the Avengers, He's not talking about like this cosmic force, may the force be with you, Star Wars kind of God. That, that's Eastern mysticism, which is a very impersonal kind of God. It's just the force out there somewhere. No, the Bible says this God is really, really personal. 
He is not like a, a God who is like a part of nature to be worshiped in nature. So avatar philosophy, that's kind of out the window. He's not like a God to be worshiped in the trees and the water and pantheism. No, this God is everywhere. He's omnipresent, but he's also transcendent, right? He stands outside of his creation, but at the same time, he has control and power over the creation. And, and this God's not like you. Like Bruce Almighty, I don't know, there's a movie out there somewhere, right? Bruce Almighty, like, no, God's just like me. I've got the powers of God, I am God. Now, there are theologians who, who talk about just the difference between us and God and then the similarities of us and God. So there are some things where we'd say, yeah, there's some, there's some of God and his image in us, right? The Imagio Dei. This is his communicable attributes. And we're not quite sure. He says, let's make man in our image. Well, what's that? We're not real sure, but perhaps it goes to this idea of, well, we have consciousness. Where's that come from? We we have volition. We we have an idea of morality. So in that sense, yeah, we're made in the image of God. But then there's the incommunicable attributes of God. And these are the things where God isn't like us at all. We're not like God at all. God, God is perfect. Anybody here perfect? Uh, good. Uh, anybody, God's all-knowing. Anybody here all-knowing? You're like, I knew enough not to raise my hand on perfection, right? Like, <laughs> God's all-powerful. Like, anybody here all-powerful? Like, bench press, whatever you want? No, no. He is, there's these incommunicable attributes that are unique to God, and it's only God, and we're not God. Now, around his attributes, we like those attributes that are, that are kind and, and soft and empathetic, and we really like the attribute that God has where we say God is love, right? The Bible says God is love. We like that one because we want a God that's loving. And we think he's made us because we're so lovable. Like God wanted to make me because he just wanted like a a teddy bear to hug. He wanted somebody to love on. I'm so lovable. And God didn't want heaven without me. No. See, God has always existed. Like you can't go back in time and not find God. And as he existed, he has always existed in the reality of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And and so he didn't make human beings because he was lonely. He already had community. And he didn't need to make people for love to exist. Love already existed in the Trinitarian reality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This God is self-sufficient. He's fine on his own. This God is perfectly holy. This is the God who determines what is good and what is right. This is the God who has wrath within him, who judges sinners justly. This is the God who determines what law is. What is law? He determines what's right, and this God is just. Now, some of those things, we start talking about how big and majestic, and we push away from majestic and powerful. We push away from that because some of that scares us. It makes us a little bit nervous. And I think it makes us nervous because we've seen what happens with people like, you know, these authoritarian regimes where they set themselves up and they just destroy everybody. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And we've grown up in a Western kind of civilization where, man, we, we get some choices here. Like, we get a vote. At least we hope we get a vote. Like we get a vote. And then, and then we're going to rule by consensus, And any kind of uh, system that's going to be set up, and we don't get a say, we don't get preference, we don't get our our own opinion to be heard, well, man, we're just kind of worried about that kind of thing. 
But God is not waiting for your opinion. He's not waiting on your preference. He's not even like interested in one culture's preference over another culture's preference. He's fine as he is. He's not like checking the latest poll numbers. Like, what's my approval rating right now? He's self-sufficient. This is a God who is perfectly holy and just and determines all things that are right and are true. Paul says, that God, that is the God that gave us the grace of God. He goes on, he says this, that was given you, this grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, for those of you that are keeping score at home, this is now five times in four verses that he mentions Jesus Christ. And there's a number of people that would say, okay, I believe there's a higher power. Not, not quite sure I have a handle on who that higher power is. I just realized, okay, there's a higher power out there. And what Paul says is you need to come to the place where you understand that we're not just talking about a higher power here. We're talking about a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And you need to figure out who he is. Because he keeps saying Jesus over and over and over again here, and he's all about Jesus Christ, and you need to figure out who he is. Because Jesus comes along, and Jesus says there's a way to get to heaven. And that way is narrow. And that way is exclusive. And that way is me. Only me. There is no other way to get into heaven, Jesus says, but him. Now, don't let that thing, that kind of statement, offend you. Don't, don't let it scare you off. Wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. Figure out what it is. There are some things that you're going to have to go ahead and just deal with because Jesus comes along, makes a claim that nobody else has made and backs it up with a resurrection and his kingship, his lordship. So you got to figure out. And you're going to have to wrestle with some things like the incarnation where God becomes flesh. And you'll have to wrestle with some stuff like miracles, like a virgin birth. You got to wrestle with things that Jesus said. He said, look, I have the authority to forgive sins. Other people can say they forgive sins, but I have the authority because I am God to forgive sins. You got to wrestle with the fact that Jesus says he's equal to God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I, we are one. So you, you I'm sorry, but you got to figure out about Jesus. And C.S. Lewis, he says, you've got three options when it comes to Jesus. You've got three choices. And these choices actually come after uh, you get past the kind of smokescreen kind of idea that, well, Jesus is just a myth. So if you ever hear somebody, at least this is my thought, if I ever hear people saying Jesus is a myth, I'm looking at somebody who very likely has not done some serious study. Because there is a mountain of evidence. There's like archaeology, a whole lot written from people, not just in the Bible. There's eyewitness events. And so myth, you can go ahead and dismiss that. So Lewis says, you got three options. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's either a liar, liar, pants on fire, hanging from a telephone wire, or he's loony as a bed bug, or he's Lord. And if you've not come to the place of saying, okay, Jesus is Lord, you're left with liar or lunatic. And a liar is not a good teacher. And a lunatic really isn't somebody that you want to be following. So you're going to have to go ahead and wrestle with who Jesus says he is and what we're talking about here. And after you get done wrestling with those kinds of things, for some of you who are kind of like, oh, I'm still not sure, because you're wondering, what's going to happen if I give my life to this Jesus? If I make him the Lord of my life, what are my friends going to say? What, what's my family going to say? What is this culture? What do they begin to look at me as? 
I'd say embrace that. I'd, I'd say go ahead and not let that stop you from the adventure of embracing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is like the, the Lord of the Rings. This is the day for movie uh, references, all right? Uh, I think I've set a new record today. So, Lord of the Rings. My, my wife, Tammy, my daughter, Shelby, we're watching the, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings again. There's this moment. There's this moment where, where the party, they're about to walk out of the Shire. And Samwise Gamgee, who's, who's walking along, close friend of Frodo, they're, they're about to leave. And this is what J.R.R. Tolkien writes in his book. He says this, Sam was the only member of the party who had not been over the river before. He had a strange feeling as the slow, gurgling stream slipped by. His old life lay behind in the mists. Dark adventure lay in front. And I think that's what it is with Christ. I think our old life, it, it lays back in the mists. All that guilt, all that shame, all that junk left behind. And we step into the dark adventure of not really knowing where this path is going to lead and what's going to happen. But we know the one who we're walking on the path with. I would encourage you to embrace that kind of life, that kind of adventure with Jesus. So this, this grace comes from Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, that in every way you were enriched in him. Every way enriched. Now, if Christianity was pitched to you in the way of saying, man, you become a Christian and you're going to be miserable. You, you, you become a Christian, you're going to hate it. Like, this is just going to be awful if you become a Christian. If that's how Christianity was pitched to you, you don't understand what Christianity is. Because with Christianity, what God comes along, he says, you're going to get joy. Like, not just, not happiness, that's surface level. You're going to get something deeper than happiness. You're going to get joy. You're, you're going to be enriched. You are going to be fully human. You are finally going to be alive spiritually. And this is something, this is something that is unique. It enriches your life. It even enriches you in, in the difficulty and the struggle of this life. It gives you meaning. And it gives you a meaning that atheism doesn't offer. In atheism, the only thing like you've got is just like right here, right now. And when you struggle right here, right now, it's really, really bad. And then you're going to die. And then you're worm food. But when you receive Christ, there is a meaning to our struggle. There's a meaning to the suffering and all that this life has. And that meaning doesn't just last here. It goes on like forever into eternity. That's a long time. Like that's, I don't know, start thinking like 80 million years times 80 million years. How about 800 billion years times like 800 billion years? And it just goes on and on. And we are with Jesus Christ and we have an enriched life. It's eternal. Verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him. Then he says, in all speech and all knowledge. Now, the Corinthians, they love speech and they love knowledge. They love debating. They loved philosophy. They loved thinking. They're, they're all about knowledge. And Christianity is not absent of knowledge. It is not a mindless faith. We get to engage our brains. I mean, there are things that Christianity answers in regards to the mysteries of this universe. There, there are answers within Christianity that science can't answer. They don't have answers. Like, they don't have an answer for first causes. They've got theories. Yeah, 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 theories. Why are we here? 
why do I know I'm here? Oh, there's a bang. It was big. And, th and then there was things evolving out of the bang. Oh, cool. Uh, where did the bang come from? Well, if you go to the very, very center, we'll probably find it with the James Webb telescope. If you go to the very, very center, there's probably this great big glowing ball, like Tesseract, we'll stay with movies. There's a Tesseract, right? And it has all the energy of life, and it's just like, and then bang, here we are. Huh, what made the Tesseract? They don't have any answers. Where does our consciousness come from? Science can't answer that. What about the idea of beauty? How do we know what's beautiful? How about morality? Science has no idea why we're moral. And then Christianity comes along and it has answers for this, you know, historical, philosophical, theological, literary answers about why we are here. It is the best answer to the form and the function of our existence and why we are here. The Christian faith, it's not void of knowledge. Dive head in. Get a whole bunch of knowledge because it has answers. And maybe you'd say, all right, okay, 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 fine. Like, there's a higher power and then there's mysteries. I just believe you can get there however you want. If you're gonna get to heaven, just choose a religion. All paths are going to, like, to the same place. We'll just get there, and everybody has their own truth. Again, that makes no sense. That's, that's illogical. Not everything is true. Some things are false. You, you can't say every path gets there and every religion is right. Some religions say there's 100 million gods. Another religion says there is no God. Christianity comes along, says there's one God and three persons. They can't all be right. Somebody's right. Somebody's wrong. There is right and wrong, and it's just so weird that I have to say that, right? Like if your kid comes home from school and says that they, they learned something new in school today, I learned today that two plus two equals pickles. Well, what are you going to say? Nowadays, people are saying, well, you can believe whatever you want. What are you talking about? We're going to exchange truth so that people can feel good? Where does that go? I think we know where it's going, but where does it end? There's right and there's wrong. Not everything is true, but we live in this culture that's so inclusivistic. We say that everything and every idea and everyone is right. No, no, we got to go after knowledge. We got to go after true. We got to go after right. And saying that does not mean and it's not unloving. I don't know there's people that want to cancel you when you say that kind of thing, but it's not unloving. But here's the deal. It can't be at the exclusion of love. And Paul's going to drill this down real good in, in uh, chapter 13. In chapter 13, he's going to talk about, you can have all the knowledge. You can have all the knowledge in the world. And if you don't have love, ah, you ain't got nothing. There's somebody who said that to be right in the wrong way is to be wrong. To be right in the wrong way is to be wrong. But the flip side is also true. To not speak the truth when someone is wrong is not loving. It is not loving to know the truth, to withhold the truth, so that somebody can just simply feel good about themselves. There are some things that must be said that are offensive. They must be said. 
the gospel's offensive. You are a sinner, and you need a Savior. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. That's loving. It's not loving to withhold the truth. You love yourself more than you love the truth. You, you, you are worried about being canceled if you tell the truth. You're more worried about your reputation, what other people think about you, and what this world system might say than you are of speaking the truth. You just love yourself. It's enriching to know the truth, to give it lovingly. I need it. I need it. I need it in my life. Let's say at some point in my life, I just start going like cuckoo in the cabeza. Or I'm just like going off my rocker. And I start believing some stuff that I'm feeling. Like I start telling somebody here in church like, man, I, I love my wife, Tammy. I love being married to her. But man, I kind of love this lady too. And I feel it. I really feel it like it's in my heart. And I can't fight this feeling anymore. Now we've gone into music, right? <laughs> like I just feel it like I love her. I love this. Bro. I don't want to leave Tammy. But I also... I need somebody who's going to come into my life and look at me and go like, what are you thinking? Have you lost your mind? That's sin. Like even to entertain in your mind an idea about being with this other person, that's adultery. Get it together, man. You're like going to sink your life based on your feeling? Snap out of it. Get some self-mastery. Get some discipline in your life. That is loving. It's not loving to look at me and be like, well, I'll just go after your heart. Do what you feel is right. No, no, there's right, there is wrong. And all of this comes from knowledge, not our knowledge. We're stupid. God, I should get a better filter. He's the one with the knowledge. It's not like my opinion. It's not my opinion. It's God's opinion. It's his knowledge, it's his truth, it's his wisdom. And let's lean into that. Let's go there. Verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ, six times, six verses, even the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any gift. Paul says the confirmation that what he said was true about Jesus Christ is the fact that the church lacks no spiritual gift. Like you want to know that you're now a follower of Jesus and my testimony about him was true? You're not lacking anything. Is there something in your life that you would point to and there's no way that you could explain it without there being a God of the universe and his Holy Spirit working in your life? Like there is a God to be known and experienced. So what we're saying is, this isn't just like cognitive head knowledge that we cram into our heads as Christians. This isn't fact and knowledge alone dismissed of experience. What we're saying is, God can be experienced here and now. For some of you, that's kind of scary, right? Like you think anything experiential or feeling, then that means you're void of sound doctrine. But that's not true. That is not true. What we're talking about here is marrying up our mind and our heart that there is a God to be known personally in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what the Shema, remember we talked about Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's emotional. With all your soul. Yes, with all of your mind and all of your strength. These things are not divorced. We're going to marry these things together and we can experience the richness of knowing Jesus Christ right now and experiencing him. And some, 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 some. Some of you may not be experiencing the life of Jesus 
because you get more joy out of money. That holds all your attention. That, that has a hold of your heart. So some of you may not be experiencing a relationship and, and just the sweetness of a personal relationship with Jesus because you're more interested in the things of the world. Like the world's calling to me, and I, I love these things, and I love my flesh, and I love my sin. And you may not be fully experiencing what God has for you through the power of his Holy Spirit. He says, you're, you're not lacking any gift. And then watch this. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that Greek word wait, that word means eager anticipation. It means waiting with expectation. While I'm working, I'm waiting, I'm hoping, I'm longing for the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that we as Christians, we have this hope that Jesus Christ is returning, that he's coming back, right? He ascended into heaven after his resurrection. What do you say? I'll be back. Another movie reference, right? Best Terminator ever, right? He's, I'll, I'll be back. And he's coming back. And the great thing, when Jesus Christ comes back, he's setting up his kingdom, like he's going to sit in a throne and he's going to reign here on earth. Now understand this, he is already king of kings and lord of lords. That means that he is sovereign over every single king who has ever lived, any king now. He's sovereign over any president or prime minister. Like he is in charge, they must answer to him. He's sovereign. Now we have seen and we experienced that there are kings and rulers and others who are trying to set up their own kingdom, right? There is this battle that goes on with a world system that is at odds with the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But Jesus says, I'm going to be back and I'm visibly going to sit here on earth on my throne and I'm going to reign and I'm going to set all things right. Here's why we hope. Here's why we hope. Here's why we're waiting. Because we realize that when Jesus returns, he's going to be exalted and he deserves it. When Jesus comes back, he is going to defeat Satan and he deserves it. He, he is going to give justice for the martyrs. There are people who are dying even today who stand up against kingdom authorities and say, I'm not bowing my knee to your kingdom. I have a different king. And they're dying for their faith. They're called martyrs. And this has been going on since the beginning. And it's still going on. They're dying in India right now. They're dying in Afghanistan. And in Revelation chapter 6, we see this picture of the martyrs. And they're there below the throne, and they're crying out, How long, O Lord, before you avenge the blood of the righteous? And so when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to be exalted, and he deserves it. Satan's going to be defeated. That guy deserves it. The martyrs are going to be justified. They deserve it. Those who hate Christ are going to die, and they deserve it. And the other thing about it, when Jesus Christ comes back, I get to go into heaven, and I don't deserve it. Which takes us right back to grace. I don't deserve that. I was at odds against this God, doing my own thing, spitting in his face. And yet he gives to me this undeserved, unearned kindness in his grace. 
And when he returns now, I'm looking forward to it, not for me, for him and for his glory, for all that he will finally set right. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, come back quickly, Jesus, who will sustain you. That means he's going to hold his children. It means you're, you're sealed in him and he's not letting go and there's nothing that can rip you out of the hands of an almighty God who has called you to himself. He's going to sustain you to the end. Guiltless. That's amazing. Guiltless in the day of our Lord. There's some great picture there with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, Jesus Christ, God is faithful. He's faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You want to know where all of this life is going? You want to know where all of time is just kind of unwinding and spinning down like a, a top that got spun and it's now beginning to wobble just a bit and time is going to run out? This is not going to end in nothingness, as atheism says. This isn't going to end with people kind of being you know, developed into the new age all soul. This isn't going to end with blissful nirvana. Well, this is coming to this point where Jesus Christ is coming back. And he is going to set up his kingdom, and he's going to defeat Satan, and he is going to defeat sin, and he's going to reign on the earth. This is a beautiful thing that we as Christians, we hope for, and we know to be reality. In fact, I want to, I want to show you something. It's in Revelation chapter 5. And um, let's use this as our kind of closing prayer to this. So if you would, just kind of shut your eyes and imagine what John, the beloved disciple, is seeing when he gets this revelation. It's a beautiful scene in heaven. John writes this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this is Jesus, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who's seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, Lord, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, 
And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. One day, I don't know when, you and I are gonna stand in front of that God. And we're going to have to give an account. And the question is going to be, are you going to put your own record in front of the God of the universe and receive justice? Or will you put the record of the lamb and receive grace? Step through the dark mist. Embrace the adventure of a life an enriching life with Christ Jesus, our Lord. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvilleroad.cc. God bless you.